This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we have the the great opportunity to uh, talk about a topic that's uh, pervading our news and pervading many of our fears, and a topic with a long and rich history, but a history that very few people know about. Uh, It's the history not just of pandemics, but the history of uh, what we might call pandemic persistence, how pandemics that begin um, and cause great harm linger long after people think that they are through the danger. Uh, They go in what many call waves, second and third waves. And there's a human tendency to want to get through the crisis and reach the other side to be done with it. And uh, today we're dealing with the challenges of uh, recognizing that uh, we're not done with the pandemic we've confronted. And this is an old dilemma, an old challenge. Uh, And we're so fortunate to have with us uh, a good friend, a wonderful scholar, uh, a mensch, uh, Chris McKnight Nichols. Uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Chris is uh, is a very distinguished scholar. He's the director of the Center for the Humanities uh, at Oregon State University. He's also the Sandy and Elver Sanders eminent professor in the Honors College there. Uh, he is an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, which is really a, quite a distinction, uh, and he's best known for a book that I know all of my students have uh, been forced to read. Hopefully, they've enjoyed reading it, <laughs> <laughs> Promise and Peril, America at the Dawn of a Global Age, which is really about the late 19th, early 20th century, and the debates between various forms of isolationism and internationalism, and Chris gets us beyond the sort of false dichotomies we often have about these terms. He's the author and editor of five other books. Uh, The most recently published one is a fantastic book, Rethinking American Grand Strategy. What does it mean to be a strategically focused society? What does it mean to have a strategic dialogue in the world we're in today? How can history help? And he has a new book coming out on ideologies or ideas and U.S. foreign relations. Uh, The title is Ideologies and U.S. Foreign Relations, New Histories. I'm lucky to have a, a chapter in this book. It's a really wonderful collection that Chris has put together of different ways of understanding how ideas influence American policy. Uh, Most recently, Chris has spent, I think, much of the last uh, year or so doing a lot of research on uh, this period he knows so well, the early 20th century, the period in particular uh, around the influenza pandemic of 1918, 1919, and what we can learn for today. So, uh, Chris, we're really excited to hear your insights uh, about all of these issues. Before we turn to Chris, though, we have, of course, our uh, opening poem from Mr. Zachary Siri. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? This Peaceful Dawn. This Peaceful... I love it. We have Chris's book, Global Dawn, and we have your poem, Peaceful Dawn. Let's, let's hear your dawn. This Peaceful Dawn. They say the earth rotates upon an axis, a spinning world, a gentle hum. They say the earth is never still. I say it's like a pendulum. Look, it swings upon a string. At the ends, it stops a beat, all gone of pain and death and fear. But back it folds into the curve and ends the cursory retreat. Hark over yonder where the Duke of York assembles dying men upon the hill. When they're up, they're flying. When they're down, death's had its fill. And when they're only halfway up, 
They're flightless, yet not gone. But times like these are fleeting, quite short this peaceful dawn. Uh, Zachary, I, I have to say, among other things, I am impressed with how you worked the Duke of York into your into your poem. When you're up, you're up, and when you're down, you're down. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, the uh, very strange uh, emotional nature of this pandemic and the ways in which it's become like a pendulum, where we, we feel like we finally reached a moment of peace, and it's so fleeting, and we go right back down into that swing of of destruction and death and, and pain. Right. We swing in, in two directions, right? Yeah. Uh, Chris, is that a is that a helpful way to think about uh, how societies in the past, how Americans and others have grappled with the persistence of a pandemic? I think it is. You know, the I, in particular, the line, you know, times like this are fleeting. Um, it does seem um, that time sort of speeds up and slows down simultaneously in a pandemic. And certainly, you know, the experience of the 1918 pandemic, if you look at sort of social histories, diaries, uh, letters, letters to the editor, that sort of uh, kind of evidence, you see people first, uh, you know, largely putting it off, thinking it, uh, of the flu pandemic, the first wave, which we'll be getting into, I think, a bit more as uh, just a three-day fever, a new name for an old disease. And then and then suddenly when it comes back and it's more virulent, you know, people um, get very upset, very scared. There's a, There are problems with information and time sort of um, slowed down then as people quarantined and there were, you know, other kinds of non-pharmaceutical interventions and social distancing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then, uh, then again, sort of this sense, um, you would say afterwards, speeding up our story, uh, of, a, of a kind of amnesia about what had just happened. Now, it wasn't like the trauma wasn't there. It was very much with uh, folks in the 1920s, and we can see it in the historical record much more clearly than people have um, sometimes suggested. Uh, but those it had, it had passed by, and so the pendulum swung several uh, times through, and then there was this sort of um, compulsion across many societies to move on, uh, even though they'd been so devastated. So I think the poem actually encapsulates a lot of the lived experience of going through a pandemic. That, that's so helpful, Chris. And, and maybe starting at the beginning, the first wave in 1918, a lot has been recently written about this. Uh, after ignoring it for a long time, we all came back to it uh, as, as this historical moment. One of the unique things I know you focused on are the varied reactions to it. How, how can we think about and understand the, the ways in which people reacted at that time to the part of this pandemic we've already been through, that first wave? Yeah. So, you know, um, the first part of the story that, that historians and, and really anyone thinking about how to map on the past of the present needs to understand is that the World War I context was dominant for, for what was going on then. So if you think about how governments responded or citizens responded or the ways in which um, rhetoric uh, could be made persuasive to urge people to take public health measures, um, all of that uh, occurred in the milieu of, of, a, of a world war, of a particularly devastating one if you're in Europe. Uh, and one that the U.S. you know entered into quite late. So the U.S. doesn't come to the war in April until April 1917. Uh, the first wave of the pandemic um, is really February, March is when it begins. Uh, now there's some different kinds of uh, debates over where it comes from, but we can trace very clearly influenza coming out of Kansas, uh, traveling along U.S. Uh, troop. Uh, lines uh, through uh, railroad and through shipping uh, across the Atlantic uh, to Europe uh, in uh, April and May uh, 1918. 
Um, and then you can see it go around the world, in fact, uh, so that uh, you, you have uh, influenza reaching Shanghai towards the end of May, uh, and you saw it um, in Sydney and elsewhere um, by June, and so it had kind of gone around the world. But what was different in that moment, um, which um, isn't quite like ours, so the parallels are imperfect, uh, was that the case fatality rates were much lower. It was much more mild, uh, that viral uh, pandemic in that moment. And so the governments that were responding to this, particularly the, the governments that were at war, um, they had significant incentives to, to, to underplay what was going on. And because deaths weren't so bad, um, the, it, that didn't seem in, as irresponsible as it now, now might. Um, so, you know, uh, a couple of the key data points here, probably uh, listeners are aware of this, but, you know, it becomes known as the Spanish flu in part because the censored press uh, in the U.S., in, in um, Britain, in France, uh, in Germany, in Russia, the censored press in the war uh, keeps uh, information about the flu away from folks. But when the Spanish king comes down with the flu and, and Spain's a neutral in the war, when they're reporting on it, um, it, it becomes known as the Spanish flu in that moment and weaponized as a kind of racist political uh, language because the Anglo-American press sees this on the Spanish as having, you can find this, you can Google this, some of these uh, stories, you know, having bad hygiene and bad climate. And it, that, those were the contributing factors to, to why Spain had rampant outbreaks. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways in which you, you see a kind of response a sort of nationalist, politicized wartime rhetoric. Um, and then, you know, just as a data point about the deaths in that moment, um, the uh, British Navy had about 10,000 uh, sailors uh, go to go be hospitalized uh, due to the flu, but only about four were reported to die in that period. Um, that's the first wave. Second wave, mm. far more deadly. You're seeing something like 5% of troops who get it die. You, you see wow. bases overwhelmed, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. So we, we can talk more about the second wave and, and kind of what that maybe suggests for the moment. But, um, you know, the month of October alone, 200,000 Americans die and a population about a third the size of our current one. Uh, just absolutely devastating. Wow. And, and Chris, when we talk about the first wave and the second wave, what, what do we really mean? And, and if we're in a second wave now, how do we how can that past experience help us understand where we are today? Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's a good point for us to consider, you know. Um, so w what is a wave? Epidemiologists, public health scholars and others, you know, disagree a little bit on this language and whether or not a wave is the best way to think about it. But generally speaking, if you're thinking about the, the pandemics of the past, um, the waves represent moments of mutation usually. Uh, and as viruses mutate, they don't necessarily have any direction. There's no teleology to viruses, right? They don't necessarily want to become more, uh, uh, you know, deadly uh, or, or anything along those lines. They just mutate. And so the, the waves um, are, are part of that, uh, are part of those, you know, kind of naturally occurring uh mutations in, in, in the virus and then how they spread through different infected populations. So the first wave in 1918 is this somewhat more mild influenza that goes around the world within just a short number of months. That's the spring of 1918. Then we know, again, because of the wartime context and really good data analysis, um, where and how the second wave moves. And it comes, you, you see it in uh, 
documents, uh, particularly um, U.S. intelligence documents, you can find uh, warnings of this is really bad, uh, blaring, you know, red alert kinds of warnings to the U.S. military, to the uh, British, um, saying that this is going to affect the war effort uh, in August uh, 1918. And then that virulent, more virulent second wave comes back across the Atlantic. You can watch it travel on troop transports, comes to Boston, um, and Camp Devens outside Boston is absolutely devastated. And then you can watch it through the uh, military records travel along the East Coast. It goes in by ship to Philadelphia. They have this famous outbreak, terrible outbreak, where their public health officials uh, allow a big parade, the biggest parade to date in, in Philadelphia to go on, a Liberty Loan Drive wartime parade that becomes a real super spreader event. Um, and it's not now just infections, it's deaths. And you have deaths mounting the horse-drawn carriages um, uh, uh, that uh, priests were, were traveling through uh, simply couldn't keep up with the amount of bodies. Um, something like 12,000 Philadelphians died just in about six weeks alone. It just really devastates the city. And that's the kind of thing we were trying to prevent uh, in April, May, June of 2020, when people who knew about this past public health said, you know, this is what flattening the curve is about. Don't interact with people. Don't have big events. Don't have football games. Don't have parades. Because look what happened in Philadelphia in September 1918. This, these sorts of super spreader events are something we can prevent for sure. It doesn't take any modern medical knowledge. And we have you know historical precedents that suggest how bad this is. And you can think about this again, even in the present with our numbers of unvaccinated folks. Like, is it a good idea to have 60,000 people at a football stadium? Um, you know, should they be vaccinated? These are important kinds of questions for public health, um, because if for no other reason, it, well, there are a number of reasons, but one reason would be overwhelming the he public health infrastructure affects all of us equally, right? If you have a heart attack, if your child needs surgery, uh, you know, it, they're still uh, left out of the public health infrastructure um, if the hospitals are overwhelmed with COVID cases. And you saw something like that with a much lower level of public health infrastructure in 1918, where hospitals were overwhelmed. And a really important data point then is that nurses and doctors have been drafted into, into the military. And so there was an enormous shortage of public health staff which exacerbated that crisis. Um, and then just, just recapping the, the, the waves, the third wave is generally thought of as occurring um, in winter and spring 1919. Now, this is uh, contingent around the world. I've been focusing on the U.S., but it depends where you look. Um, so that, that wave in, in the rest of the world sometimes spread all the way into the summer or even into the fall of 1919. And then generally speaking, and that wasn't as bad as the, the second wave in the fall, though it was far more deadly than that first wave. Um, and it seems to have been uh, the continuation of that uh, mutated, more virulent uh, form of the influenza that we saw in the fall of 1918. Um, and that, that, uh, that was uh, stopped as it burned through populations and by non-pharmaceutical interventions like closure policies and distancing and all that sort of stuff. And then generally speaking, public health scholars say that there, rather than a, a fourth wave, although you sometimes will see that reported, uh, the flu becomes endemic after 1919. That is, we live with a seasonal flu. It's the thing that we've all grown up with to some extent, you know, getting your flu shot, that kind of thing. And that's what most public health scholars expect will happen with coronavirus. So was there the kind of uh, blowback uh, and uh, misinformation spread during the pandemic that we see today? Did that play a role in the, in the uh, furtherance of second, third, fourth wave? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that struck me, I started researching this years and years ago uh, when I was thinking about the intersection of domestic and foreign policy uh, in, in the US and the World War I context. And one of the things that was really striking to me was the way that one, governments minimized <clears throat> the threat of uh, the flu. It was clear if you're looking at the sources from individual people that they were worried about the flu and that the flu was affecting families in the first wave and, and really hurting people in the second wave and killing folks. Um, but the health officials, the U.S. Surgeon General Rupert Blue, for instance, can consistently says that it's not so bad. Um, and there's a lot of conflicting information that comes from the higher level folks like federal folks. The Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, for instance, famously and infamously never once in public mentions the influenza pandemic, not once. Um, and you have something like one or two scattered references in all of his works, letters and private correspondence. Um, so, you know, th at that level, that's striking. Um, in terms of blowback and, and misinformation, it's amazing to look at um, the press from that era. You find things like, is one of my favorites that I love to teach are ads about what will help people. A continuous smoking will stop you <laughs> from getting it. Uh, that's a great one. Um, or, or another one is beware the telephone. You can get oh, the flu gosh. through that. Um, or, you know, uh, druggist recommends Vic, Vic's VapoRub, uh, you know, and limit the amount of people who can buy it. And it looks like, you know, some of the uh, producers of different kinds of home remedies and uh, things like that, you know, we're, we're uh, hawking them in all kinds of ways and, and, and drumming up support for their products saying, oh, there's been a rub, uh, a run on Vicks VapoRub, you know, druggists can only sell, you know, one per customer, that kind of thing. Um, the, the other piece of the puzzle that I think is a little bit more like what we've lived through uh, and, and that, you know, obviously we've seen quack medicine um, and conspiracy theories but were, were abundant then. But another piece of the blowback um, in that era that I think is gets actually gets at your poem, Zachary, is um, people were afraid. So getting mixed messages from government, getting this misinformation or lack of clear medical information in an era when people thought, hey, modern medicine was curing things. You know, if you if you look at the Philadelphia Inquirer, you'll find they say, you know, modern nursing halts epidemic right as that Philadelphia wave, second wave is crashing over the city and the city is really struggling. What, what are people to do? And one of the things you find in their letters, one of the things you find in Red Cross reports after is that people literally starved to death in their homes because their neighbors wouldn't help them. Um, they were that afraid of getting the flu. Uh, things that they normally would have done just years before, you could have relied on your relatives. There's some searing stories of, you know, a sister not helping a brother uh, and, their, and their children because they were so afraid. Um, and that's the sort of thing we felt before. And I think a lot of people are still struggling with that fear and risk assessment, you know, right now, today. And they're likely to keep feeling that in some ways because of the measures that we've had and you know, the lack of clear, coherent, real-time, honest information. It seems to me, Chris, that uh, building on these really insightful uh, points, it, it seems to me that the fear cuts in two directions, right? On the one hand, there's a kind of uh, sheltering uh, reaction uh, that can lead us to not help our neighbors, right, as you described so well. On the other hand, there can also be a sense of uh, fatalism, right? This, this is going the direction it's going. 
I've been uh, sheltering at home. I've stayed away from work for so long. I, I can't do this forever. I've got to get back to my life. I've got to go. I've got to move on. Uh, we seem to be hearing that a lot today. What, what, were there similar reactions in 1918, 1919? And what can we learn from those reactions to understand what we're seeing today? Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes about this, uh, I've written a little bit about um, the experience of different cities. And, and there's some great analysis out there if people are interested. There's something called the Influenza Archive at the University of Michigan that has a city by city analysis of how they dealt with the, the pandemic. Um, but one, one of my favorite quotes was from a Portland, Oregon health commissioner in, in February 1919, which strikes me as getting at some of what you were just mentioning. Um, and he argued the biggest thing we've had to fight in the influenza epidemic has been apathy or perhaps the careless selfishness of the public. Um, you know, that's uh, that gets at a lot of how we've seen things progressing, right? We've got those who've, who've been very serious and rigorous and self-sacrificing and others who have not or are unwilling to do that. Um, and then those who felt like they sacrificed enough, right, a sufficient amount. Um, and then the historical record, you see that in, in a number of places. San Francisco was known as the mask city. It had one of the strictest mask mandates. Um, you know, I think some people, some pr- folks in the press have overemphasized the, the blowback to that. There was the anti-mask league there. That was the one really big example, but it was only four or 5,000 self-reported people involved in that league uh, pushing back against masks. There were uh, isolated cases across the U.S. who pushed back against masks. But um, but rather than thinking about it as a, you know, a, a push, a political push or, or significant organized movement, I think that quote uh, from the health official is better. It's sort of lots of individual decisions, people in different ways um, getting fed up with with some of the, the the hardships of trying to do your best in a pandemic or or not. And so you see there's some fantastic photos in 1918, 1919 of people throwing their masks in the air when the mandates come off um, or rushing out into the streets in November um, 1918, even though the pandemic was still on because the war had ended. They wanted to celebrate. They wanted to gather. Um, and and th- those turned out to be super spreader events, um, but they couldn't be stopped. Uh, public health officials had a really hard time with that. So, so what are some of the lessons of that? I mean, you know, one clear one is that people want to gather and resume their lives as normal. And so, you know, public health officials need to figure out how you can allow as much of that as possible with a reasonable risk assessment. So it's pretty clear from data like ni- from 1918 and 1919 that um, gradual reopening is the way to go led by uh you know, led by real-time data. So if, the, if you see infections and hospitalizations going up, um, you know, you need to begin to slow down. Um, uh, you don't want to open up totally all at once. That's a very clear lesson from every place we have good data from 1918 and 19, including not just the U.S. Um, so that that's one piece of the puzzle. But how to get people out there doing things, you know, this gets at your, the underlying personal element here is really important. The other piece of that, which we haven't yet really touched on, is the politicization. Right. You know, one thing that strikes me today that is very different is that though there were politics of the pandemic in 1918 and 19, it did not map onto parties. Um, you know, they both parties in the midterm elections, which they were able to hold in fall 1918, even with a raging pandemic, um, the both parties used the politics of the pandemic to say, hey, the other one has prioritized different interests in the public health measures. But neither one said uh, that that all the public health measures were, were due to, you know, um, some kind of false sense of the medical needs of the moment or some kind of 
political rhetoric that was advantageous only to the party and not actually serving the interests of the people. So the, the, what that devolved down to was, hey, did you prioritize saloons or churches, basically? Mm, mm. Uh, and then that mapped onto uh, ethnic politics um, and religious politics within parties in different regions. So what just w- wasn't as simple as it is now. And that's it. But that is an enormous difference because we're still living with, and, and we may never be able to get out from under the politicization of public health measures, which really seem um, to have hamstrung the US and frankly, lots of other countries in, un- in unpredicted uh, and somewhat unpredictable ways from the historical record. Right, right. And, and how, Chris, do you think uh, the vaccines, which are new and extraordinary, uh, how they interplay with this story? How does that change our narrative today? And and what echoes do you see despite the difference between a, a vaccinated or partially vaccinated population today and an, obviously a non-vaccinated population in t- 1918, 1919? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that's interesting from the 1918 moment is that there was a rush uh, to get effective vaccines out there, right? There's a long history of inoculations in U.S. history. I like to uh, to note this, right? George Washington famously, you know, inoculated, uh, had all incoming uh, Revolutionary War troops inoculated against smallpox. He was a right. real believer in this. He himself had had uh, smallpox. Uh the Ben Franklin, you know, famously lamented that he didn't get his son inoculated and his son died. Um, so there's a long tradition, American tradition of vaccination, you might call it inoculation, vaccination, somewhat different, but in any case, you know, uh, close enough for us to, to call that tradition. Um, and in 1918, there was a push uh, to get effective vaccines. And you actually saw them raced across the country. You saw mass uh, inoculations of, of military personnel, um, but then they turned out to be not effective at all, basically. Uh, but there was this effort uh, to mount you know, a, a, a robust medical R&D, you know, mission to, um, to prevent and stem the disease any further. Uh, so what's amazing in this moment, what we were all talking about last year was, could this be the fastest global race to an effective vaccine in, you know, the history of science, in the history of, of humanity? And the answer is yes. Uh, and so then it is so striking that the second stage there uh, is that many American citizens, but others around the world, um, for a wide variety of reasons, aren't taking up the vaccine. Um, That's astonishing in world historical proportions. And it's sort of worth just pausing to reflect on that, you know, in my view as historian, uh, Woodrow Wilson would have ordered um, mass vaccinations if they'd been um, uh, proven effective or would have tried to do so, that there would be federalist questions there. Um, Americans very much wanted an effective vaccine in 1918. So what's changed in the last 102, 103 years? And, and what do you think, Chris? I'm hoping you can answer that, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to me, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll put something out there for you as more of an expert to, uh, on this issue to chew on. Um, you know, it does seem to me, Chris, that one of the big differences is that uh, people do believe they can keep themselves safe and are less dependent upon the community around them. They underplay how their lives interact with others. You, you stated this so clearly uh, when you talked about how the healthcare system uh, affects all of us, whether we have COVID or something else, we can get sick with a with an ancillary disease and 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 get poorer treatment as a consequence of the system being overrun. But I don't think a lot of people think that way. The same way they think they can school their kids and not worry about the public school system, I think many people think they can, one way or another, keep their family safe and not worry about others. Man, I, I buy that. I think that's a that's a good way to put it. You know, there's a mixed with that is is a sense that every person, their own doctor, right? WebMD will help me solve this right. or figure this out. Uh, maybe you have a different source of information. So that's a, a, a 
you know, maybe, you know, perhaps you're buying the conspiracy theories or you have a different media outlet that you're, you know, um, listening to, you know, there were just far fewer of those in 1918. That's a piece of the puzzle. I think one that I've been toying with, you know, in recent years of the of the recent months of this pandemic, um, but recent years has been the change in how Americans in particular think about sacrifice and sacrifice for the collective good. And I don't want to overplay, you know, American willingness to sacrifice in the past. Uh, but it does seem like the sort of individualist ethos that you're describing um, does factor into this and that, you know, uh, people were, were more willing um, particularly at the local and state level, where the, all the action was in pandemic public health in 1918 and 19, uh, citizens were willing to abide by those measures more or less in ways that we have not seen um, quite as much. Although I think, to be very fair, uh, when the future histories of this moment are written, it could be that we wind up saying the vast majority actually did agree to those measures and did sacrifice for the public good. Um, so a question of sort of how much sacrifice is the real issue. And I think that's where we're seeing this individualist ethos um, manifest itself in some of the ways you're, you were laying out. I also think that, that we've come, become complacent about kind of modern medicine and modern science um, in really subtle ways. You know, uh, one of the big things going on in the early 20th century was a kind of rise of science, this sense in the progressive era of the perfectibility of man and his institutions. That's the kind of language that they used then. And the ways in which modern science was leading the way, the social sciences as well. And then history was thought of as a social science. Um, you know, and so that one of the challenges of that pandemic was that it threw into sharp relief, cast into sharp relief, some of the false promises or unfulfilled promises of modern medicine. It simply couldn't stop 650,000 Americans, 75,000 Americans from dying, you know, and maybe as many as 50 million people around the world, you know, modern medicine wasn't up to the task. Right now, modern R&D medicine has been, uh, amazingly, with vaccines at least, although not with treatments yet, really fully for COVID. Um, wh what is, you know, why are we taking that for granted? That, that seems to be a piece of this era that we're, that we're complacent about um, the, the miraculous ca capabilities of modern science. I think there's also this like false sense that uh, that that every opinion is valid and that there can never be just one actual factual scientific response, right? That you might have your science and your medicine, but I as the individual get to have my separate opinion and you have to respect that in a way that I, I don't think people are willing to accept uh, the sort of accepted belief um, without first sort of formulating their own opinion, even though they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I buy that. I think, you know, one one thing that's interesting about the Wilson moment is it cuts both ways there. Wilson famously started his com committee on public information. And one of the famous things that the muckraker, George Creel, who was a he a he the head of that, said that there's sort of no difference between truth uh, and lies, except, you know, in the power of those ideas to persuade. And that was kind of what the wartime state was all about in World War One. Um and, and in that era, you know, the progressives were, did make the argument that you just made that, that there is something really fundamentally important about truth and facts. Uh, and yet these progressive journalists who were tasked with promoting patriotism and sacrifice during the war um, played fast and loose with those. So, you know, maybe we live with a long legacy of some of the modern bureaucratic ways in which states function, which is to say that there's less difference between truth and lies uh, in the politics of sort of entering into the social arena, entering into the political arena, that Teddy Roosevelt square. Sure. And, and I think, Chris, um, one of the challenges as well is these are complex issues. 
And um, it, it's, it is understandable that uh, someone who has gone through the vaccination regimen, as most of us have, and I hope everyone listening gets their vaccines, uh, it is understandable that someone who's gone through that, and some people, of course, were not comfortable with that process, but did it anyway. They did the right thing. Uh, they now feel like, wait a second, I've done this. Why should I have to wear a mask? Uh, why should I have to go through these procedures? And, and of course, they should. Uh, it's still important uh, not to spread the virus, uh, even if you are vaccinated. But that's that's a complicated narrative to spin out, right? It's not about just doing one thing or just doing a few things. And again, there is the way in which this persists. I've heard a number of students say and, and colleagues say, you know, we're now into a year and a half of this. How long do I have to speak to people through a mask? How long do I have to go get curbside instead of eating at the restaurant I want to eat in? And, and I guess my question for you, Chris, in addition to your reflections on that is, what worked in 1918, 1919? Clearly, the, the effects of the influenza pandemic were devastating on the United States and the world. More Americans died from influenza than from the war, uh, which is astounding. Um, but yet, society went forward. Uh, and as I think is true today, the majority of the people complied and did the right things. Uh, what helped people get through this over that long period, which I think was so much more difficult then because they didn't have the internet and they didn't have credit cards. How did they do it? Yeah. Well, so the, the first point I think is, is a great one, right? The pandemic persistence. Um, one, one element that I like to emphasize in thinking about um, pieces of persistence then um, is that the U.S. public health infrastructure had basically no policymaking power. It was state, county, city governments that really determined responses to the pandemic, how long things stayed on, whether or not there were manda mandates or recommendations, all that sort of stuff. That's really where the action was. Uh, and that has remained true. Uh, the states and, and cities, counties that we've seen do well on this pandemic, got out in front of it, had good public health messaging and confronted the reality of what you just so aptly put, right? This is complicated. This is changing. You know, remember uh, March of, of 2020, people thought transmission happened through packages. If you were at all concerned about that, you might have been wearing gloves. You might have been wiping down things coming into your house. You might have been wearing gloves and masked and wiping things down and all kinds of things, depending on your your um, view of that. That changed rapidly, right? And same, so did uh, sort of CDC guidelines on masks. And leaving aside the politics of that, the reality of the underlying science, this question of is there a singular answer, is that there may be in any given moment some good answers, provisional answers, but they're changing. And that's really unsatisfying. That's that pendulum swinging that, that Zachary was talking about, because at some point you want to take that masks off. And so maybe you can find some evidence or maybe the evidence on masking is changing as it is right now as we record this, right? That, you know, uh, even vaccinated people are being recommended to wear masks inside. But perhaps we don't want to. We're finally happy to not be doing that, those of us who've been, you know, as diligent as possible, or maybe double masking. Um, so, you know, that that's unsatisfying. Uh, but, you know, the question of where public health responses operate best and are most effective, I think, is a really important one. And I think it's very clear from the historical record and what's happened recently that that local is where the action is at. And that's where we need to focus our efforts um, at communicating good knowledge about those complex issues. And I think for us, you know, us, the, the two of us in university complexes, you know, uh, and, in, and in schools, you know, that's about um, being honest and open about we know, what we know and what we don't know and not pretending to have all the answers. So that's that's one part. So then the second part of the question, sort of what worked, well, 
a, a couple pieces of this. You know, one thing that I've been surprised at, and the fellow scholars of the flu pandemic of 1918 have as well, is that we all expected the flu to become endemic, uh, or the the coronavirus to become endemic around now or in the next year, um, which it which it is becoming. But we didn't expect this second wave, and this is where we started our conversation. You know that the virus is ahead of us on mutations. That that Delta is here. It's far more infectious. Is it fifty percent more? Is it a hundred percent more? It's more virulent, um, so that it seems to be having you know higher infection uh, and bad disease outcomes. Um, you know so. Who's to say there won't be another wave and another uh, mutation? Will it be better? Will it be worse? You know, we can't know. Um, But, uh, you know, fortunately for those living in 1918 and 19, the most virulent wave was that second wave in fall 1918. And even though there were still a lot of deaths and suffering um, in winter and spring 1919, um, it had been burning through populations. uh, So that by, you know, 1920, you've got a seasonal flu that's still pretty bad. Let's be honest. A lot of people are still dying of the flu, but it's nowhere near as bad with none of the public health measures being taken that we'd seen before. But lots of local areas, if you go to local records in counties and cities, they're still analyzing what happened in 1918 and 19, in 1920 and 21. And they're trying to figure out when to throw on protocols like non-pharmaceutical inv- interventions, closing schools and social distancing and even masking uh, when the flu is coming around. And I think for, for me, one of the lessons of that moment is that we all need to be setting our expectations right. Um, that is to say, it is probably not reasonable to set expectations of no masking, just hanging out, business as usual, normal life, um, anytime soon. And that's hard to say, and it's really harder to take on board. But that lesson of 1918 to 19 to 20 to 21 is that that virus, infectious diseases, know no borders and mutate rapidly. And so good public health starts with citizens. Uh, it starts with that quote that I was saying, let's not be carelessly selfish. You know, let's um, all take a role in this. That's sort of what you were saying about let's all get our vaccines. So one of the things that worked was that, you know, local officials kept their eye on the data to try to figure out how to stop it from spreading when it did show up. So when you saw some flu cases in a major city like Dallas in 1920, they're ready to throw on provisions. They've got nurses ready to go. They now have a better sense of what treatment uh, will work. And I think that's the kind of thing we're going to see for the in the near term. You know, historians know better than do, to do too much predicting, but that seems mm-hmm. like the kind of thing that helped setting expectations better when people came out on the other side of all that fear that we were talking about earlier. It, it's such a good point. And I, and I think one of the things that comes out so well in your research and your recounting of it, Chris, is, is that um, there are no simple moments when you can say we're finished or when it's safe to go back to life as before. But that doesn't mean that everything has to be locked down. There's a lot in between locking down society fully and opening up fully. And and too much of our discussion is this dichotomy. Are, are we opening society or are we keeping it closed? When in reality, what you're describing is much more case-by-case adaptation at the local level to the conditions at that moment, which might mean opening schools, but not necessarily for a certain group or requiring masks at schools, but not just keeping schools closed or keeping them fully open. There's a lot in between. And and in a way, uh, it seems to me that's a theme of democracy throughout our podcast, right? Which is that the, the simple statements that sound politically powerful don't match up with the historical realities. It seems to me that's what you're describing, Chris. I think you're so right. And, you know, I'll, I'll double down on that comment to say, you know, one of the things we saw in the pandemic and we continue to see, which is really insidious, is this false binary between the health of the economy and public health. 
And, and you saw this very much in the debates of 1918 and some of that pushback, say, by anti-maskers and others. But what economic historians have proven is that proactive measures for public health need not be uh, you know, draconian and last forever. These lockdowns don't necessarily need to last forever to be effective. And in fact, the cities and states um, and counties that, that took those kinds of measures in 1918 and 19 and the ones that have most recently um, bounce back economically as well. And so you, you can have partial openings. You can have an economy that's doing okay and be taking into account the public health of citizens and the wider population. Um, it need not be an either or. And we need to step away from that kind of thinking, which is simple. It's sometimes very persuasive, but it's just flat out wrong in the historical record. And it has this kind of slippery slope logic, um, which which is really problematic for democracy because we just we, if you're pitting the economy versus people's deaths and disease, You've, you've taken a really serious misstep. And that was something that was debated in 1918 and 19. Um, and, and the mistakes that were made then are ones that we've uh, tragically seen, you know, in some states and cities um, in, in 2020 into 2021, and, and they need not be made again. It's, it's so important. And I, I'm going to double down on your doubling down and say that as a fellow historian, I can come up with very few examples of communities that ignored health or climate dangers and came out better for it. Just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Just the opposite. Uh, and, and I think that's an important reminder to, to, to all of us. Uh, Zachary, I know you've been involved in a lot of discussions. It's hard to avoid them uh, with other students, uh, school administrators and others about these exact issues uh, surrounding what, what's appropriate to do, what's not. Should there be high school sports or not? Should people be in the classroom or at home? Does Chris's historical analysis help you to advance those conversations from where they are right now? I, I think they do. I, I do think it's it's also particularly interesting when we're thinking about uh, young people today, my generation, that, that we're really coming of age uh, as learners, as students during this pandemic, which means that we're getting a lot more of the public health uh, history and science uh, that, than your generation did. And I think that's actually really key because I think we have a lot more faith in these institutions of public health because we're having to interact with them from a very early age in a way that most Americans today did not have to. It's a really good point. I mean, when you were going back to school in the spring, you, they took your temperature every day, right? And- right. And, and, and even, even younger kids uh, in elementary school, they are also interacting with the system. So I think hopefully uh, we will come out of this experience with a greater faith in our institutions of public health, if not in our leaders. Right, right. Uh, Chris, to, to sort of bring this to a close uh, on an optimistic note, as we always like to, as you know, um, do, do you see this cause for optimism? Do, do you see this uh, tragedy that we're living through uh, having an important enlightening effect on us? And, and was there similar similar implications to the earlier pandemic of 1918, 1919? Well, I think, um, so I, I can easily come up with a number of ways in which this pandemic is transformative. We've seen it in, be transformative in terms of our thinking about inequality, who, who is served by public health infrastructures, you know, that, that marginalized people um, and, and those with lower socioeconomic status uh, suffer more in pandemics. It's very clear. Um, the, the nature of work has changed. So remote work is much easier. Uh, you, you alluded to technology, you know, in 1918 and 19, 
um, you know, people couldn't work from home. You either worked or you you didn't work, right? Uh, and so uh, in the wartime industries and in some industries, there were 40% drops in, in who was working uh, in the plants, um, not because they were all sick, but because they were making, you know, uh, risk benefit calculations and saying, I'm not going to work with this raging infectious disease around. Um, you know, there, so there are a number of vectors there. I think, you know, uh, students, uh, jury's still out on what this generational dimension, you know, will be. Um, in, in 1918, you know, the majority of people, the vast majority of people who died were 18 to 45, something possibly a half to two thirds. You know, so this uh, uh, pandemic has, has had the bulk of those deaths located at the 65 and over range. You know, what does that say? I mean, I'm curious to know what, what Zachary would have to add there. What does that say about what the experience is? But you know, some epidemiologists suggest that there's kind of generational impacts are more important when these um, pandemics hit the younger generations because those who come through it or suffer through it um, are more transformed by it. So, you know, um, the state of Pennsylvania famously in 1918, there were 45,000 orphans. Um, you know, it was really a, a horrible uh, hit to younger people, uh, wage earners in that era. And, and one of the things coming out of that pandemic that we've heard a lot about that I think is also problematic is that there was an easy transition into the roaring 20s, so-called, right? That wasn't the case, or at least the Roaring Twenties weren't that roaring in the way that we tend to think. That's a simplistic rendering. There was inflation. There was the rise of the Klan and xenophobia, um, really uh, draconian immigration restrictions, uh, a kind of you know inward-looking set of domestic politics. You know, Calvin Coolidge's famous "The Business of America's Business" kind of logic. Um, you know, not a lot of looking out for fellow citizens. You know, so we didn't. I'll learn a lot of those lessons. A contrast I often note is that you know Canada developed a, a, a pretty robust Department of Public Health in 1919 because they realized their federal structures were not very good um, at dealing with pandemics. The U.S. did not. One of the things that historians often talk about is the U.S. really didn't centralize you know the U.S. Public Health Service with any policymaking power until much later. So you know what lessons will we learn there? You know how should we prevent the next pandemic? Should we have a better strategic national stockpile? I mean, yes, obviously. Um, you know, what will what lessons have we learned about public private in research and development for vaccines um, and being ready to go when when a new infectious disease arrives? Because it's a when, not, you know, not an if. Um, but I do think there's some, you know, some things here that that are interesting uh, about the nature of work, the nature of interactions, the possibilities for global exchange and interchange. And the fact that, you know, I, we haven't mentioned it yet, but Black Lives Matter protests span the world during a pandemic. Um, that would not have been something that many of us would have predicted, that mass gatherings were possible and weren't all super spreader events. Um, so, you know, I think activism thrived even in the midst of a pandemic is a fascinating theme to pull out that the sort of thing that we historians will see in a generation and trace where it goes. And, and a lot of that is located in the younger generation, frankly, younger folks, um, partly because uh, they had a higher risk tolerance and were less at risk. So that's an interesting piece of this puzzle too. Where's that going to go? As, as Zachary was implying, perhaps, where will this generation's experience of the pandemic lead them? Greater solidarity, more democratic activism. Uh, will it be more atomistic? Will it be more individualistic? We're trapped in front of our Zoom. You know, we're trying to get ours, sort of thing. You know, uh, unclear to me wh where that will go, but uh, but it seems very clear that the experience of the pandemic will be definitive in the lives of many school age kids, people in high school, middle school, lower school, and college. So well said, Chris, and and I'll just add, and I think this this might be a nice way to wrap up so many of your brilliant comments here. You know, it 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 um, it seems to me that one big outcome of this has been 
a, a greater sensibility of how vulnerable our lives are, even those who are most privileged. And uh, what that means, as you've already pointed out, for policy lessons and future activities is uncertain. Uh, but it's very hard to make the case now, especially to citizens of all ages who have lived through the last year and a half, that somehow Americans are invincible and somehow we have all the answers. Um, maybe that's not enough, but I do think that's quite a sea change, I think, from when you and I were Zachary's age or when you and, you and I were college students or even when you and I were in our 20s, Chris, which wasn't that long ago, but it was a little while <laughs> right. ago, right? Um, and and I, think, uh, I think a certain humility, which I take from your own work, uh, was an outcome of 1918, 1919. That generation, uh, whether we like their politics or not, uh, they, they had a sense of the limits of American power and the limits of American security that I think um, were, was lost to a later generation and maybe has been found again by mm -hmm. this generation. And I think if you go global with that, that there's another interesting dimension that, you know, coming out of 1918, Woodrow Wilson would have had the U.S. in the League of Nations and would have had the U.S. participating in anti-pandemic efforts and, and anti-infectious disease efforts through the League of Nations, which the U.S. did not do. Um, and, you know, is this a moment where a kind of global consensus could be reached on really fighting the collective challenges that face humanity, right? The, talk about a, the fundamental democratic question of our era, climate change and the kinds of things that transcend what any one nation state can do. Chris, I think you've given our listeners an agenda and you've uh, displayed for us how the study of the past elucidates our world today. It doesn't offer uh, simple recipes of any kind and the differences are as great as the similarities, uh, but the echoes and the experiences uh, of the past help us to understand our own time better. And, and I do think they offer us uh, some ways to think about what our democracy should look like going forward and the kinds of debates, the worthwhile debates and conversations we should be having, not the distractions that often take us uh, off of our trajectory, I think. Um, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today, and uh, we hope to have you on again. It's wonderful to be here, and thanks, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks, Zachary, for sharing your insights and your poetry. Yes, Zachary, thank you for your uh, pendulum metaphor for us for today that I think worked perfectly for our discussion. Uh, and thank you most of all to our listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.